Welcome to the Talk and Chatter Experience powered by Gasoline Alley, Harley-Davidson. Today's guest is motorcycling journalist and racer, Rennie Skaysbrook. Welcome, mate. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks so much for being, um, being part of the show, mate. Um, yeah, you're sitting over there in California on uh, Wednesday afternoon and Thursday morning here. And uh, who's Rennie Skaysbrook? Uh, I know, good question. I ask myself that sometimes. <laughs> okay, <laughs> pro- uh, probably... Uh, like I'm a journalist, motorcycle well, motorcycle writer. I'm not really, I'm not a qualified journalist, so I never call myself a journalist. But probably a motorcycle drifter more than anything. <laughs> I seem to just kind of go into different areas and stuff like that. But yeah, I'm a bike. Basically, I'm a bike content producer for primarily for Cycle News here in the US, um, and had worked previously uh, for um, Jeff Ware at Rapid Bikes Magazine, um, Australian Motorcycle News, and then I. I had freewheeling my own mag before I came over here. So, yeah, basically trying to continue to eke a living out of riding motorbikes. <laughs> it's a, um, yeah, you've obviously found, you've found your craft in it now, like to establish yourself over in the US and, and whatnot. You, you must have found your craft pretty well now, yeah? Yeah, it's been good. I mean, the US has been very good to me. Um, I've been really lucky with it, to be honest, because... Um, it's a. I had no idea what I was getting myself into before I moved here. When I came here in 2015, um, it was only ever supposed to be a two-year thing. It was going to be just a two-year holiday, working holiday, and then I liked it so much. Got another two-year visa, and then another one, another one. Um, so the it's been really cool. I've got to do a lot of cool stuff that I probably would never have had the chance to do, and uh, and I've made a lot of contacts with within the industries which you know it is a bit harder to do uh from australia you kind of have to be in front of a lot of people and the u.s industry is is still very highly regarded uh by a lot of the manufacturers so um yeah and plus to be you know the road test editor at, at a company like cycle news a magazine like cycle news which has been going now for 65 years or so and it's one of the bibles in the american motorcycle publishing game it's been it's been pretty cool i think uh on the second aussie to, to work here aside from Paul Carruthers um, uh, Kel, you know, the great Kel Carruthers his son uh, was the editor for many years and um, and he moved on and I took kind of semi moved into part of his role when the when the restructuring happened in, in 2015 so yeah it's been good Mate it must be pretty like it must be a pretty proud thing because like Cycle News for, for motorcyclists around the world is is uh like it's like one of those things that should be heritage listed, if, if, if that makes sense. It's it's um it is. It's one of the, it's like a it's like a golden magazine or now golden online content uh, for motorcycle fans, isn't it? Really? Yeah, it is. I mean, I always knew of Cycle News and being primarily sort of interested in racing as a kid and all that. Like we never got Cycle News, but I always knew what it was, um, and I knew the Aussie connection with Paul. Um, so, yeah, if you ever wanted to get the happenings in American racing, especially Cycle News is where you went to. Um, and, you know, Paul being a road race guy, um, yeah. you know, the current sort of the current editor, Kit Palmer, um, who's a fantastic editor, like the, he's, he's a bit more on the dirt side. Paul was a bit more on the road race side. So I would be hanging out for Daytona 200 reports, you know, yeah. AMA Superbike stuff, like, you know when the gobits were out here racing and all that kind of stuff and 
um, it really cemented in my mind how important Cycle News really was. But I I didn't appreciate how big a deal it was until I came here. And you say that you say it sort of could be heritage listed but there's a few people out here who would like that to be honest because it's got a pretty diehard following out here in the states so yeah it's uh it's a pretty cool thing to be a part of and it, it was good to get the confidence i guess to, from the publishers to pack up and come because they could have very easily got a an american to do the job but then you know, they gave us the confidence to do it um to you know put the nuts on the line and get your passport and go kind of thing which has been really cool <laughs> how, how, how was it putting your nuts on the line so to speak like because it, it is it's a big jump to come from Australia to sink yourself in you're based in California it's a big jump isn't it? it it was it's one of those things where you like it's like what the what's the worst that could happen almost like you, yeah. it was at, it was at that point where it, it, it came at the right time and there's a funny story behind it like I was working um, for Next Media in Sydney when I had my magazine Freewheeling which was an adventure adventure magazine which you know hindsight I didn't do terribly well <laughs> as much as I, I, I had a go at it but I wasn't real good at it and uh, as the editor I kept kind of I didn't have a clear vision of what I really wanted the title to be and it suffered as a result but I had basically said to myself I was going to go freelance at the end of 2014 and uh, at the end of well, for, for the start of 2015 and and I got on Twitter, uh, I typed up my letter of resignation and I got on Twitter and I never go on Twitter. So I, even now I never bother going on Twitter and I was waiting to go into my boss's office and give him the, give him the envelope. And I looked on Twitter and Paul Carruthers put a thing up saying, 30 years of working for Cycle News, I'm off to go and run the PR stuff for Moto America. And I was like, that's weird. So I sent him a message. And Paul and I had never actually met face to face. We'd spoken a lot over email. and. Um, and we obviously knew a lot who each other who each other was because my dad and his dad are friends and um, and yeah he says yeah he's, he's going and um, I go you got any freelance work and he goes oh yeah probably give me a call so called him up and then ten minutes later I had a verbal job verbal offer to move to the states so I rang up my wife or my then fiance Annabelle and said you want to move to America she's like yep. And I walked in and went, there you go, see ya. <laughs> wow. And then six months later, it, it was a lot of screwing around to get the visas and a lot of that stuff. And there was a point at about January, sort of end of January, where it was looking pretty shaky as to whether it was going to happen. And I'd been out of work then at that point for about two months and living off savings and it was looking a bit shaky, but they, they pulled through and we got our visas and... That, that afternoon we booked the tickets and three days later four days later we were in the States and um, so it happened real quick um, and it was, a, it was a pretty wild experience it was like totally had no idea what I was doing and had no idea where I was living like the only thing I knew was that we spoke English and I knew yep. some of the American writers and I thought that I was going to be living in LA um, it's in, we're in Orange County which is about about an hour or sort of like halfway between LA and San Francisco and, and uh, San Diego mm-hmm. um, so I had no idea just didn't appreciate the size of the place didn't appreciate how many people are in LA I mean you've been here like it's you go you go out of downtown LA yeah. on, a, on a Friday afternoon mate you got a million people trying to get home it's traffic like you've never seen before so that stuff we were just like 
you know those things, those things that piss you off after you've been there for a long time. But at the time when you first see them, you're like, oh wow, how cool is this? And they just, yeah, it's we'll take funny. a photo of this. This is cool. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny because like the one of the times we I had to go into LA, one of the first or second times, I I remember pulling over on the 405, and there was a traffic jam. The 405 is the is one of the big freeways that links LA and Orange County, and it's like six or seven lanes across both sides and both lanes were completely blocked and I got out of my car on in the in the in the freeway and just started taking photos of all the traffic <laughs> and people are looking at me like I've got two heads and I was like I better, I better get back in the car <laughs> such a novelty though like it it sucks for you now because you've been there for a few years but such a novelty when you first get there when you're stuck in traffic and there's a million people around you quite literally yeah totally you know, yeah, yeah yeah it's i mean there it has the world it has the tag of the world's worst traffic for a reason and uh, yeah and it and it just bewilders me why people more why more people don't ride motorcycles in in la because yeah. well california especially because california is one of the i think there's only three states in the whole country that actually legalize lane splitting so mm. it's the perfect place to do it. You got the most people. You got the worst traffic. You can get on a bike and just zip through all of it. Like I don't even care if there's traffic now. I just jump on the bike and rip through all of it, and it's and it's yeah. fine. So uh, it's a good yeah. advertisement to go ride. <laughs> well, it really is, and you've got to climb it. You can ride 365 days of the year yeah. in California, pretty much. So uh, absolutely yeah. ideal yeah. place for it. Well, um, we had we had we had rain today for the first time in months. And, and really? So it was just, yeah. You walk outside, it's like, what's this stuff? And you kind of forget it rains. So what are you coming into? Are you coming uh, into spring? Yeah, yeah. It yeah. Is. It's just starting to just coming out of winter a little bit now, and um, yeah, it, it gets it gets cold, but not like I mean, I'm from Sydney, and Sydney gets pretty cold, and it's not like Melbourne. Yeah. Melbourne gets cold. Like Orange yeah. County gets a little bit cold. Like. And people complain about like you got nothing. <laughs> yeah, this is fine. This is fine. Yeah. You're still in your shorts and thongs. Exactly. Um, Cycle News was uh, Irvine based, wasn't it originally? Is it still still out that way in Orange County? Yeah, it, yeah. It's sort of um, it had been. It's been all around the Orange County area. Like it was originally. Yep. I think it was in Long Beach, and then it was yep. in Costa Mesa, uh, Newport Beach kind of area, next yep. to Huntington Beach. Um, and when I joined, it went to. Uh, Irvine and we were there for a couple of years and then it went to another area and we've kind of just been bouncing around all over the place basically now like it's actually built it's out out of an area called Marietta which is mm-hmm. uh, where KTM USA is based and a few others but that's a bit of a hike from my place so um, I've been you know everyone talks about working from home like I've kind of been doing it now for about three years which has been has been actually pretty cool really um, yeah you certainly get a lot more done when you don't have to spend two two hours each way in traffic. So um, yeah, true. Yeah, so we've and look to being a, an online publication. There's really no need for us always to be in the office. And um, yeah, we've we crank out a lot of work each week. And I'm testing bikes. I mean, in the garage at any given point, there's usually three test bikes in the in the garage, and they're just always on a big circle, um, which is. You know, it's a, it's it's a good position to be in, <laughs> especially when you love motorcycles. Exactly. <laughs> what? Um, where'd you get your riding craft? Like, obviously, um, you've you've got a famous last name within motorcycle journalism, being yeah, you know. Um, but where did you get your riding craft? Uh, probably from the last name. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
yeah, that like, helped. Yeah, exactly. Like dad and or dad's family as well. Like grandpa, grandpa was a um, motocross kind of champion, and um, dad was a long was a very sort of got a very well known uh, sort of ability in the Aussie scene. Raced a lot of dirt track, road racing. Um, yeah, he did the TT three times, and um, so and mum raced and. I mean, I've been on a bike. I got my first bike when I was five. Um, for my, I think it was my fifth birthday. I got the the Aussie standard of the PW50. Oh, uh, no, it was a yeah. QR50 Honda. And um, oh, trader. So, yeah, exactly. Got on the got on the QR50. It was number two at the time because Wayne Gardner was running was running number two in 1987, the year he won the world title. Yeah. So I had big number two on there, and and um, used to go and just bash around on that a little bit. But I'd never. I didn't start racing until I was about 14, I think it was, um, and then just doing club motocross and stuff like that. And, um, but yeah, I just, I was always riding, you know, whether yeah. I was just out riding with mates or going and doing a bit of motocross or some flat track or whatever, and um, just kept staying on the bike. And whenever it was like, it's, it's like now, you know, when things go to shit, get on the bike, have a ride, feel better at the end of it. Like, it's the yeah. same thing that it's always been, and and it's been. I mean, motorcycling in our family has been the glue, really, that's kind of kept us all together for so long. And um, you know, I don't know what my dad would be doing if he wasn't involved in in bikes. And same with I mean, my mum's got a uh, MT07. And she had she's had Ducatis and Hondas and all kinds of stuff. We're all just bike nuts, and gives us a gives us a bit of an identity, which is kind of cool. Um, but yeah, they're right. And like through the job, primarily through the job, has been the ability to be able to get out there and do a bit of racing. And um, and racing has always been like a secondary thing. It's never I was never good enough or anything to be able to make a go of it as a as a pro. Although I feel like in the last few years I've gotten at a decent enough level where I can, which has been an off a byproduct of the job too, by riding so many different bikes and going to different um, tracks and countries and dealing with that kind of stuff, you naturally get a bit of a, a bit more of a, you, you gain a bit more ability without even thinking about it kind of thing. So um, that's been that's been really cool as well. So the, the jobs helped feed the passion, the passion's fed the job, and it's just kind of snowballed. Because um, to add to your list of credits now, you're a Pikes Peak winner. You've you're doing racing in, in heaps of different classes. Like that's probably the, probably the most racing ever, yeah. I guess. Hey, really? Well, again, with the the US industry, you know, I've been incredibly lucky to have uh, support from a lot of people um, that didn't need to give me any help, really. Like they. I just you know, sell them the idea of doing some stories together, and like thankfully they see a lot of guys see the the value in the. I guess it's kind of like a, you know, it, trying to relay the information or relay the experience of racing to a different category or group of people that might necessarily go out and do it themselves, and and like Pirelli has given me such help over the years in, in America the, I mean I wouldn't be able to do I wouldn't have done any of the racing if I didn't have the graces of, of Pirelli and um, so like the the racing has been really cool and um, it's enabled me to sort of try different things that 
I would never have had the chance to do. Like in 2016, I got to do the Vegas Torino race with um, uh, Johnny Campbell, the off-road racing legend Johnny Campbell, and yeah. uh, we rode an Africa Twin with um, Honda Africa Twin in the 500 mile desert race um, with, with two of the designers from Honda who yeah. came over to do the race and um, that was wild as well I mean I just would never have thought of doing it you know like there was we, we went out to Bonneville and like we did, I didn't ride at Bonneville but we got to go out there and hang out with a bunch of people and, and check all that scene out and you know obviously do all the Pikes Peak stuff and uh, other other bits and pieces so yeah it's been it's been super cool man that's a that's that would have been a um a pretty pretty full-on journey wouldn't it vegas to reno and africa oh Queen. yeah man like that's we they we broke it up into four what was it yeah we were four guys and we had i think it was about an hour and a half per per rider and um I was second both days to start off with. Like we, like we were teaming with the JCR Honda guys. So we had Brabeck, Ricky Brabeck, and um, Joan Bereda. Actually, I think Brabeck wasn't racing. It was, it was definitely Bereda. As well, it was Bereda and Michael Metgay, the French, um, French Dakar racer, and and Bereda just smoked everybody and um, did the whole thing solo and all that. And but the whole idea for us was, don't get caught by the trophy trucks. And because yeah. you know you you're racing, <laughs> you're, you you set off in front of the trophy trucks, and you know same all the beast things that Toby Price drives and all that, and and I remember I got into the pits and I'd ridden my ass off for an hour and a half and on this bloody lumbering adventure bike, and I got in and I was like, I was so thankful to give the bike, and then I looked behind and just as I'd stopped, I looked behind and the Monster Energy truck was was coming in, so the lead the lead trophy truck, so I didn't get caught. And my teammate then jumps on the bike, the Japanese bloke, and he kind of clears off. And there's about a two-minute pit stop with the um, Monster Energy truck. They swarm the thing like a Formula One pit crew and whatever and change everything. Guy gets in it and drives off and then trundles out of the pits and just goes mash and just puts his foot down and it just annihilates the desert. And old, old mate on the, on the Africa Twin just got swallowed up and this Monster Energy just bang and he was out there. I was like... That's the coolest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> it's just, it was wild. Oh, mate. Big budget trucks, those things, eh? Oh, yeah. Huge, huge money. Like, you kind of wonder where it's where it's coming from, to be honest. But, um, yeah, yeah. yeah it, it was, to see that stuff in action, like, like one of my favourite movies is Dust of Glory. Um, you watch the the old Baja 1000 movie, Dust, the, yep. Dust of Glory. And, and uh, in that movie, Ricky Johnson, the the uh, AMA motocross legend he says yep. in the dictionary when you look up macho there should be a photo of a trophy truck <laughs> <laughs> when I saw that I was like man he is spot on with that that was just wild <laughs> what a cool experience like I guess growing up in like you were up in Sydney hey yep yeah in Roswell like growing up in growing up in Sydney to being in the middle of Vegas or whatever like Vegas to Reno to see something like that that, that must be sort of one of those pinch yourself times yeah Oh, for sure. There's been yeah. so many. I mean, like I, 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 what I say, I got lucky. I guess um, yep. I don't think it was through any great, you know, strategic sort of an analysis of my career that I just happened to get here. I just happened to get lucky, and I checked Twitter at the right time. But the, <laughs> <laughs> basically, but yeah, Thanks, there's Twitter. been a lot of. Yeah, winning. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it was it was great. Like. You know, going up to Pikes 
uh, you know, hanging at Pikes Peak with one of the coolest things I've ever done on a bike was not the race. It was when we would go to the top of Devil's Playground and you would be on top of Pikes Peak as the sun was mm. coming up. And, you know, it was just one of those things. Like, I remember sitting there with Chris Fillmore and Carlin Dunn and a couple other guys and we'd just sit, no one was talking. We'd just sit there and watch the sunrise. Like, it was so cool. And, you know, that's kind of, and that kind of stuff, not even tourists get to do. Like, they don't get to go on the top of the mountain as the sun's coming up. Um, so there's, that, that, just that stuff as well has been, has been amazing. And, and then obviously getting to go and do a lot of the European launches and going riding around on some cool race tracks like that has been really enjoyable. I was going to get I was going to get the Pikes Peak later, but when you touched on it now, so we, we will go to that. Like when I first met you, it was in Pikes um, in twenty sixteen. Your your first Pikes. What what made you do that originally? Like was that something that you'd had as a goal or not really? Twenty sixteen sucked. <laughs> I don't have good memories of that one. Um, that bloody yeah. barrier. Oh, that bloody barrier. Oh, well, mm. live and learn. Um, mm. No, I I didn't know. I mean, I remember watching the Climb Dance video. Um, if you ever mm. watched the rallying Climb Dance video with Ari Vartanen and the Peugeot. And yep. I always thought it'd be cool to go there, but I had no idea that bikes even were on the um, were on the cards. And, and then when I found out when I was, I was in 2013, when I was still running the Adventure Mag in Australia, I heard that bikes were riding and... I was like, oh, man, that'd be cool. So I, I fired it off an email to the organisers to say that I'd like to come over and do it. But I just had, again, just had no idea about the processes involved and all that stuff. And and um, when we when I got here in 15, about two months after I got here was the 2015 race. And Indian, or oh, Victory, as it was back then, but Indian um, Polaris, they flew all journalists out because they launched one of their bikes um, in Colorado at the same time as the race. And so we got to go and hang out there and I was like, this is awesome. I'm doing this. Mm-hmm. And um, so I basically went back to KTM and said, I want to do it on the, sh- I want to do it on a Super Duke next year. And they were like, yeah, all right, cool. And they gave me the, the bike. Uh, Pirelli gave us the tyres. KTM also put up the... Um, the parts to basically race the Super Duke because no one was really racing them at the time and and then um, you yeah, know we did a whole bunch of testing and you know bits and pieces and they um, it was never a paid thing like there wasn't I wasn't contracted by I've never been paid by any of the guys that I've ridden for to race the event and um, um, so yeah we just managed to get the thing going and um it was always one of those things that like I thought because I had done some street racing in, in New Zealand in the previous uh, at Wanganui in 2014 at the Cemetery Circuit in 2011 and when I arrived there I think it was like top six or something in the 600 class there so I always liked street racing and I thought yeah I could just I reckon I can have a go at this and and yeah it worked out that it was a it just seemed to gel with the place and um so yeah, it was that first year probably taught me more than it was probably a good thing that I threw it in the wall because it certainly taught me a lot about trying to keep emotions in check with racing and not get overly sort of not read too much into all the stuff going on just to focus on what you're doing and deal with it that way because it was um it was a I got 
very lucky with that one. Like, if that barrier wasn't there, I, I still would have been flying now. <laughs> so, um, Mate, even yeah. as a as a road as a road bike rider, like to collide with that barrier, like, yeah, you know, you're you're, you're lucky. Yeah, totally. Well, the the thing that was, was terrible about that was not my accident, but the guy before me, um, he hit that same corner and like, cause he hit the same, he hit the same corner, but he, and like I, I basically got into it cause I, I thought I was behind, but I was actually five seconds in front. And I said to myself, I've got to hit this flat out. And I'd never done, um, I'd never taken that corner flat out. Um, it's called Elk Park. And, um, I'd never taken the corner flat out before in practice. And so I just went, fuck it, let's go. And I just pinned it and I got through it, but I got to the other side of it going 40 mile an hour faster than I had in, in practice. So I hit the brakes and I knew I was going to crash, but it was a case of like, do you fold it or do you just kind of hope that you can dirt track the thing into there and, and just hope that it works out. And amazingly, that's what happened. Like I sort of just drifted the thing into it and um, the bike hit the barrier and I went over and the bike stayed upright because um, it went between the tires, the, the hay bales and the tire barrier. Um, so I got back on and, you know, that was it. That was a race. And um, But the guy before me, Connor, he did the opposite and went through there and folded it and he just pretzled himself around the, the barrier. Um, and it was a really rough time on the top of the mountain because we all thought he was dead. And um, there was the, the thing with, which we also found out later in with Carlin was like, it was very much a, um, no, no, they don't, they don't give you any information. So there's no, you can, you, you can't find anything. So people start to hear one thing and then Chinese whispers starts happening somewhere else and all that stuff. Um, and so this poor guy's dad was the guy after me and he gets the top waiting for his boy and then he finds out that he wasn't there and it was looking like he was dead. So we're like the somber mood there was just unbelievable. And um, yeah, it was, I got, I got home after that one and I was just like pretty deflated and found out he was all right, but it took him a long time to get better. Like it was, a, it was, I re- really now realize how lucky I got with that one because it could have been a very different story. And, and it's a, um, it's a lonely place up there, isn't it? Like even yeah. as a spectator, um, when things just go silent, it's it's a very strange place to be, you know. Sure is, yeah. I mean, it's it's such a bizarre place to race. Like it, it's a. I'm so thankful that I got to do it a few times before it got eventually cancelled for bikes. Um, I hope they bring it back. I really do. But like, I mean, I haven't had such fun on my bike ever like that place is just awesome when it's when the weather is good the bike's working well the tires are good you're feeling good it's because the thing too about that place is that every most most of the corners are positively cambered as well so you can just throw the bike into some of these corners and the thing just sticks and um there's there's a there are a couple of sections like when you come from devil's playground to the top and it's just you just pin the thing and you know it's there's a couple of corners like the one that chris fillmore's famous 
you know, just stayed on moment. Like, people don't realise how gnarly that was. Like, he was going into that corner, like, like top, what well, would have been top of six gear. And so he probably was doing 140 mile an hour or something at that point. And um, yeah. I've kind of converted to mile an hour. So it's 220 Ks, <laughs> whatever that works out to be. Yeah. Um, and he just threw the thing in there and you can see it's backing off to the edge of the cliff. And from that point, that cliff is a straight drop. Like there's, you know, and you'll die of starvation before they find you. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah, he bloody managed to get the thing around. And I remember, saw him, I saw him at the top and he got told he got the record and he just had this like white ashen look on his face. It's like, shit, I just nearly died. And um, didn't stop him coming back. Like he, he yeah. wants the... Once the bug had bitten, he was back. But yeah, that was there's some gnarly spots at that place for sure. Did did you like when you did the victory launch? Did you go up to the top? Uh, no, we only got to. We did. I think it was like half half the mountain. Um, yep. Uh, because I mean, you've as you know, you've been there. Like it's um, it's full of tourists. Absolute shock. Yep. It's full of tourists. So. Uh, we could only we were just turtling along up the hill and when you get to the um, ski booth toll areas which is about a bit over just before halfway and then you see you've got all the w's to get to the top you know that that stuff is takes it takes hours if you if you're going at you know 10k an hour behind a whole bunch of uh, motorhomes and things like that so we just turned around and came back but it was it was enough for me to say yeah i'm got to give this a crack and um but yeah it was it was good that for i was very lucky that cycle news actually agreed to let me keep doing it because uh, i think they knew i got out of it with uh, by the skin of my teeth in 28 2016 so it was it was nice of them to let me keep doing it <laughs> to to go like for, for me uh, a friend of mine paul dawson over here um him and i used to race a bit of supermoto together and we yeah. we often spoke about that that's like a bucket list we really wanted to race pikes and then when I went there in 2016 and got up towards the top, I said, nah, I never, ever, ever want to touch it. You know, I was just driving the car up and I was like, mate, this is one of the things I've always wanted to do as a kid. Yeah. And then I got there, nah. Cause same thing, the Ari Vartan video, that was the thing, seeing that as a kid, I'm like, well, if they did that on bikes, that's going to be, and they obviously did. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's unbelievable. There was a bunch of stuff there that wasn't. Like that was, I mean, there was so many, there was so many cool things, but there were so many sketchy things. Like, like I remember one year in practice, um, the final corner, uh, the second to last corner, was just completely covered in dirt, and it's a, um, and it's a uphill right hander top of fourth gear on a superbike, and you know you, you're going into it, and it's like you, it's like going into a gravel trap, and yep. there's little rocks and stuff all over the road, and I was like, Man, guys, couldn't you clean this, like? Um, yeah, we, we, we sort of, because a lot of the stuff, especially in the last year, the whole top of the mountain was a construction zone because they were building up this, um, they're building up this tourist kind of area and tourist center and whatever you want to call it. And so it was very dicey trying to get to the top. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, I guess it's the risks you're prepared to take, I guess. Like it's a, it's a fun thing. And yeah, I mean, it's just the adrenaline of that place is unlike anything I've ever experienced. And, um, yeah, I mean, hopefully, look, if this, if all this COVID rubbish clears off, I'm hoping to do the TT, um, which was going to be hopefully done in 2020, which 
didn't happen and then we're on live 2021 didn't happen so hopefully if 22 comes around and it's it's a go then we'll give that a go maybe that'll give the adrenaline glands a bit of a squeeze compared to pikes but we'll see (laughs) for sure mate and you had that all lined up eh? you had entry and everything yeah Yeah, it was all good to go I mean it still technically is but um, yeah we've got I was going to race for the PRF racing team uh, for a guy called Paul Rennie Spelt the same as my name, which is a good sign. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> it's an omen. Yeah, exactly. Um, but that was only ever going to be a like a again like a bucket list thing kind of thing. And um, yeah. um, and you know I've got enormous respect for TT races. And I mean, one of my best friends is David Johnson, um, Aussie legend, and and you yeah. know Cam Donald and all those guys um, like the stuff that those guys did like having been to the Isle of Man now and seeing really what it's about it's like, oh, man it's ballsy stuff like yeah. I'll be on a 600 and a 600 is like a nice sort of easier slower pace things happen a little bit slower <laughs> man to ride a to ride a super bike around there full nuts far out man you gotta you gotta be sure of yourself <laughs> and the modern super bike like it, it they're just they're just weapons hey Oh yeah, I mean, if you ever watched that video of Peter Hickman, the yep. 135 mile an hour lap of Peter Hickman, like it's just so fast that, and again, it's like you you are you're dealing with a screen, and when you're on the bike, like as anybody knows who who's ridden a motorbike fast, you you're thinking and your and your vision eventually sync up. You know, you can kind of get used to the fact that you're going 150 mile an hour or whatever it is, but like when you're watching it on a screen and it's all condensed it just looks like he's going through a water painting. <laughs> so, mm. And you, you think about the reactions that you've got to have at that place and to see every little jump and the manhole covers and the gutters and the trees and the, the this and that and 37 miles of the thing and then to hit every single one of those ones absolutely pinpoint on a 240 horsepower superbike because it's a pretty special uh, skill to be able to pull off, I think. <laughs> like you imagine it if you're, if you're a robot or computer, to be a fast processor like to be able to you know what i mean like to be able to process all that data it must take so much to build up to that you know many labs oh, for sure much time yeah. researching talking to people well i i did 28 laps in the hire car um and i basically i i had been playing the tt video game non-stop yep. for about six months after i found out i was i basically got the nod to do it um, so I kind of knew where I was going when I got there, but I mean, again, I'm only speaking from a car's point of view. I mean, things are very, very different when you're going full speed on a bike, but like, um, there are so many little nuances with that place and just little, like, I mean, I was, I was in the car with Milky Quail, who's the, um, rider liaison officer, won a couple of TTs back in the day and, and just the little knowledge bits and pieces that he would throw at you. I'm just like, I'm sitting in the car just going, uh, I have no idea what you're doing. I have no idea what you're saying. And he's talking, he's firing stuff at you so quick. And, you know, you're doing 40 mile an hour in the car and he's talking at you at 200 mile an hour. And it's just it's like, man, like, it's, uh, <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> but it, it's a it's an incredible place, man. The place is just built for motorbikes. You go into every shop, there's pictures of Joey Dunlop and there's bikes in, in every like windows and stuff it's it's so cool <laughs> that's one of the ones that you know pikes is obviously at the at the present time being canned for motorcycles um you just hope it doesn't happen to the tt you know as well because it's yeah. one of those things 
Yeah, totally. I mean, you got to look at how the world, the modern world is. The fact that TT exists right now is pretty amazing when you consider yeah. the, the litigious, litigation, litigious, whatever it is, society that we yeah. live in. Um, the fact that it's still going and it's sponsored effectively by its own government uh, in the Isle of Man government um, is quite remarkable, really. Um, and that, I think, was half the reason why Pikes kind of stopped is that the TT is ingrained in in the area. Like, it's the identity of the Isle of Man, whereas, mm. you know, the Americans kind of think of it a little, think of racing and the dangers of racing on roads a little differently, probably more yeah. like the rest of the world does, um, <laughs> you know, to be honest. <laughs> I don't think there's, there's not many people out there, not, not a race of people out the world like the Manx people, I'll tell you. <laughs> Mate, I, I've never been to TT. That's that's one of the ones that's definitely on the uh, the list list to get to. And yeah, just just watching it as a kid growing up, like there's there's really nothing nothing like it. No, I mean I watched that movie V for Victory with Joey Dunlop, and I can remember the '94 TT video with Steve Hislop one. I can remember that word for word. I must have watched that VHS about a thousand times as a kid, and it used to drive my dad completely insane. So but it, was, it was one of those things that I never thought I would ever get the chance to do um, and I kind of resigned to the fact that I didn't. I thought that boat had sailed and whatever and um, I mean it still may have sailed, we never know, like just the way the, way the world's yeah. going at the moment, if it doesn't start again then whatever, it's not, it's kind of easy come easy go at that point but if it does happen and we get the chance to do it then yeah I'll be, I'll be up for it and we'll, we'll have a bit of a crack and, and try and write a terrifying story on it. <laughs> oh, mate, there will be for sure. Terrifyingly yeah. fun. Yeah. Um, you're a brilliant, like you're a brilliant that you just did the TT on, uh, not the TT Pikes on last time, 2019. Yep. Now that was a pretty, um, pretty well kitted machine, hey? Yeah, it was. Um, it was it was kitted, but it wasn't too wild. Um, yep. It there was a you know in hindsight we kind of lost out a fair bit. We. We're dabbling with the idea of throwing an RSV4 1100 motor in there, like a worked RSV4 1100 motor, which would have given us 225, 230 horsepower. Um, uh, but we ended up running the standard Tuono motor and we had 160 horsepower on the dot at altitude. So that, and that was with tuning and all kinds of stuff. Um, yeah, we had uh, RSV4 1100 suspension front and rear. Um, we had, you know, lightweight wheels, uh, changed the brakes. We, but the biggest thing for us was to get the uh, electronics right. Um, the KTM was very plug and play. Um, you know, the Super Dukes, you just put some gas in it and off you go, basically. I mean, the last one, the, the, the first one, the first year and the second year, the thing didn't even have a power commander. Like, we just, we literally put, yeah. We just ran the auto tune that it had with it. It had a full exhaust. So you would put the Akrapovich exhaust on that came part of the KTM kit and it had its own little um, program that you had to put through the ECU, which you did at the dealership. Um, and once you did that, it was all good to go. And um, so, yeah, that was super easy. But the Aprilia was a different was a different thing. It was much more electronic. And like, we had a lot of problems in the practice sessions where... You, you know, you put the thing on what it's supposed to be the one-to-one -one map uh, where you get 
when you get do that, you get that at the throttle, but you still don't quite get that at the throttle. You still get a little bit of delay. And um, so we rang it. We did a SOS to Noali to the factory in, in Italy and said, you got to either give us the keys to get into this ECU or send us a map or send us a whole new reprogrammed ECU. So they sent over a map on the, the day, the, the first afternoon of practice and we tried it the next morning and it wasn't any better. So amazingly, they then got the guy who wrote that map to get a new kitted factory ECU that he made in Nuale, put him on a plane, flew him straight to Colorado and at like one in the morning on Wednesday morning, he turns up with his blood red ECU and we're like, great. I mean, I just couldn't believe it. And it proved that proved to me how much the race meant to Aprilia. Um, to yeah. like Massimo Rivolia, um, who runs the MotoGP team, he was our he was our contact, and um, you know, Massimo is the head of Aprilia Racing. So uh, that was sort of, that was kind of cool, or very cool to see, because I was like, we had a good team there. Like we had, you know, we it was the first time I ever had a real racing team. You know, we had a data guy, we had a had a crew chief, a chassis guy, a suspension guy, and tire guy, and all that, which. You know, guys that have ridden for factory teams, it's kind of part of the course, but it was new, it was new for me. Yeah. And, um, and then um, Nicola turns up with this ECU and because um, the problem was is that the thing wasn't leaping off corners, especially in the hairpins. Like it just, you're like, come on, you want all that grunt. And the thing just would give you that little delay and that's, you know, two tenths of a second or three tenths or whatever. So, so the top of Devil's Playground, he like rips all the electronics out at three in the morning and just plugs the thing in and goes, right, go for that. So I went on the start line, I went, boom, dropped the clutch and the thing just went, wow, and just huge wow. wheelie came down. I was like, all right, we're on here. And then the times just drop, 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 drop. And then we were back on the pace um, to be up with the Ducatis and things like that. So yeah, it was, um, it was a good bike. It wasn't terribly, um, like anybody could build that bike aside from probably getting the ECU, um, yep. which you're only ever going to really, really notice. I think, uh, like we, I raced the thing with the standard ECU, the the reprogrammed standard ECU, and a bunch of club races out here, and never had a problem. But it seemed to be when we were at altitude, and because you know, start at nine thousand feet, finish at fourteen thousand feet. Yep. Um, so you, it would, there would be some weird things that would go on there. I don't, I have no idea what, but all I could do was tell them what the bike was doing and and yeah they they knew it and fixed it and um and then off i went so it was uh and that was a big eye opener at that point where we come out of hairpins and things just just like a v8 it was great <laughs> wow that's cool eh? what a change yeah oh, huge huge change i couldn't believe it. it was it was like i likened it to like being in the line at the nightclub with all your mates and you're not getting in and then the guy who knows the bouncer just walks up, pats him on the shoulder, and you all walk in. <laughs> Good analogy. I'm going to ask you about this. Do you think, and like reading reading your articles and watching your online thing, do you think your things like analogy like that, and you've got a um, oh, how do I say it? Like a really um, funny way of of putting things. It's not a. It, uh, it's comedic. You've got like a comedic approach to things. Do you think that's helped you as, you, as your motorcycling career? Um, maybe. Um, I try not to take it too seriously because we're not curing cancer here. Like, it's supposed to be fun, isn't it? You, 
Yeah, it's supposed to be fun. Like it's yeah. I'm going like I'm lucky enough to do a job that most people would dream of doing, and you know you're you're dealing with motorbikes. Motorbikes are fun toys. Um, mm. You know, you you're not dealing with with life or death things here, and um, so you got to got to have a laugh and make it a bit fun because. Why, why, why are you riding motorbikes to be serious? Like, it's, it's not MotoGP. <laughs> this ain't MotoGP here. Like, I mean, I mean, even even at MotoGP, you look at Valentino and he's laughing his ass off most of the time. So it's like, yeah. and if he can do it, anyone can do it. <laughs> That's it. Like, and to anyone that your Super Legera article, one of the one of the later ones that have just happened. The first, if you go through it, read the first few paragraphs, you'll understand what I mean. Some of the wording and that, I'm just like. It's just cool. It's ref- it's fairly refreshing anyway, I feel anyway. Well, I figure that was the only time I'm ever going to get to ride one of those things and I'm certainly never going to get the chance to afford one, so I might as well have a go at it. <laughs> Fire, look good, eh? Yeah, it's, that's a special looking bike, man. Um, yep. For, for a production bike, it's a hundred grand in the US. I don't know what it is in, in Australia. Um, but yeah, that's one of those bikes you look at the first time, you're like, Whew. yeah, that's that's some special stuff. Um so yeah, I got got lucky to that, and that was cool too because Ducati Ducati USA were never obliged to do a press ride. It was kind of strange that they even did one, to be honest, because so, all the bikes were sold. You know, like they they all they didn't need to big up the bike; it was already gone. So um, yeah, getting to go for a ride on that, and and getting to ride at Laguna Seca, and uh, and riding at Laguna Seca without the noise restrictions as well, because they. There's a person that lives on the top of, I think it's turn five at Laguna, and they sit there with a noise gun, and if the thing oh, trips, wow. then you get a phone call and you get warned once. If you get tripped twice, you get sent home. So, because um, it's right oh, wow. in, right in this kind of resident, not residential area, but there are neighbours around. Um, you know, typical, typical stuff where people buy cheaper land because it's next to a racetrack, and then they start complaining about the noise. So. so um, yeah, common story exactly. isn't it totally yeah exactly so so unfortunately that guy is all about it but yeah on that day on the Suzuka we managed to get uh, get a free day where we could go there and really bring the thing out and uh, yeah that was that was super cool hey, that would have been unreal now that Aprilia that we're talking about you got to test it at Coda and that didn't you with Max yep. is that correct I think I remember yes. seeing something back in the day yep. yeah that must have been yeah, pretty Max cool and I wish, uh, yeah, we shared a garage, <laughs> which was it was kind of funny. Um, I remember sitting there, like looking over, and he, and Alicia Spargo was there as well, and um, but he was in the garage next to us, um, and it was funny because my bike was in with the Aprilia MotoGP guys, and I, they wouldn't let me get my bike out. <laughs> so, oh really? Cause like I was, yeah, they're like, no, 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 because I didn't know who I was. And I'm like, this is my bike. Okay, <laughs> <So laughs> so, and it was funny. A spider came out and like once we got it out, we looked at it and sort of sat there and scratched it and sort of went, sucked his teeth a little bit. Asked me about two questions and bang, he was gone. I never saw him again. And um, wow. so I was like, okay, that was weird. But um, Max was really cool. Uh, Max and I were talking for ages and hanging out for for quite a long time. And to be you know, just we were just sharing a track day, but like just to sort of hang out with the legend like that and yeah. uh, was was super cool. I mean, one of my all-time favorite bikes, production bikes, is the well, production and race bikes is the Black Chesterfield Aprilia's that he used to race, and oh, yeah. um, those things are just pff, money. Those things. So I was like, I was sitting there 
asking him all geeking out and being all fanboy <laughs> about his 250 days and bits and pieces and he was totally cool about it so it was really nice mate they're a piece of work eh? the RS250s like that they oh, had yeah. just yeah. a beautiful machine I was lucky enough to ride one actually at Phillip Island um, oh wow I got to, yeah I got to ride Alex DeBond's so Ben Reed, the the Aussie guy who was running the um, he used to run Remy Gardner back in the Spanish yeah. Championship when Remy was a real young tucker and um, he bought Alex DeBond's Factory 250 and this is back when I was working at AMCN and I got to have a ride on that a lot of guys have ridden it since like Jeff Ware has ridden it and a few other guys and um, but that was the first time I'd ever been on a real Grand Prix bike and I was like man that's not easy bike to ride like they're stiff super stiff and wow. yeah just, just a really cool plus I'm like about three foot too tall to fit on the thing anyways <laughs> it was great you don't have the MotoGP frame <laughs> all the flexibility <laughs> oh mate it's unbelievable like the, to see what they they can do and their size obviously just it's, yeah. a, it's amazing isn't it well it's funny I remember being in the pits at Coda um, for I think it was the 2016 race at, um, yep. in Texas and they had um, Loris Baz and uh, Hector Barbara were teammates in the Avintia team and they had the two bikes sitting side by side and Baz's bike was about that much longer than, than bloody oh, Barbara's wow. bike because Baz is taller than me he's like 6'2 or 6'3 or something and Barbara is <laughs> about 4 foot nothing so it's like it's just like a, it was like a stretched limousine MotoGP bike and this tiny normal size MotoGP bike <laughs> Mate, in in the modern meme Twitter era, it's a wonder no one made the uh, the twins thing from Ar- twins from Arnie and Denny DeVito. Oh, the like, <laughs> two sides. You just reel them off, yeah. Mm. They um, <clears throat> he's he he did really well last year actually, Loris Baz, didn't he? he made yeah, he jump did. Back. He's he's coming over as well. He's coming over to the states. Um, well, for Moto so, America. Yeah, he is. Um, so he got he had to go on the ten k. Uh, Tenkata Honda, yeah, sorry, Tenkata Honda, Tenkata Yamaha. Um, I think that team ran out of money, and so he's got the Ducati New York ride, which will be really cool for for the US Championship because he's a proven World Superbike race winner, and uh, and he sounds like he's looking forward to it. But he's um he's a he's a good rider, he's a very very good rider, and I think it'll be really cool for it'll certainly give the American Championship a boost that it needs um, yeah. especially with Cameron Bobier now going the other way and going mm. to um, going to the Worlds which um, can only be a good thing really because it's, he needs to go find somewhere to you know test his talent at the higher level because he was just yeah. it, was a, it was like watching Mick doing in the 90s you know it was like who's going to finish second kind of thing <laughs> yeah um, so it'll be good I think Moto America will be good this year he was really starting to fall into the Ben Spees thing, I feel. You know, where it was yeah. getting... Uh, there was nothing left to do there, was there? No. No, there wasn't. And it's very difficult for Americans, like it is for Australians, to to get over there and do it. You really need to have a leg up. And also, you can still learn at the very, very top. It's nothing like what it was when Maladin and Spees and those boys and the Goberts and all that were... Yeah. Uh, we're out here doing it. Um, I mean, you could earn mega bucks back in the day um, in the 
early like late 90s early 2000s like it was the place to be in the states and i think that was why Maladin never went to the world championship because he was like well, why am i going to go there i own way more money here so yeah. but it, and that had f- faded out enormously but there were still two or three rides in the states that if you're lucky enough to get you you could get pretty well looked after and cam was on by far the highest paid ride out of all of them um, so for him to go and go, all right, well, give, a, give, the, give the thing a shot and see how that works out. Like, I mean, he's got to be commended for it because he walked away from a pretty substantial paycheck to, to get over there and do it. So, you know, I mean, I really hope that he does, that he does well because he's a nice guy and, and, it need, and I mean, the US racing needs to get another guy up there. I think along with Joe Roberts, it'd be good to see. Yeah, definitely. The, like when, when America's doing well in sport, the whole sport's doing well, hey? Kinda, yeah. That's a good point, to be honest. Like, um, yeah, Joe Roberts uh, is a great kid. Um, yeah, he's quite young. He's 21, 22 or something. And I think Cam's about 27, so he's a little bit older. But it's, you know, I, I don't know about you, you guys, but like, I mean, I don't. I'm kind of sick of seeing the Spanish domination. I want to see yeah. the World Championship be a World Championship where we have, you know. Spaniards, Italians, Australians, Americans, Japanese. Like, I'd love to see a Chinese racer get up there because that would be huge for the sport. Like, with the, um, you know, we had the Malaysian kid. Um, um, I can't remember his name now. Um, yeah. Um, oh, jeez. Yeah. Yeah. He was. Has um, Siren. Siren. Yeah. Yeah. Siren. So yep. like. Yeah, I mean, that was enormous for Malaysia to have its own MotoGP rider. Um, and that can only be a good thing. The more that different nationalities get into the sport, um, you know, Damien Cudlin, you know, a good friend of mine back home, like Damo's doing the kids thing, has been doing it for a number of years with MotoStars, um, and he's doing his bit to try and get the next next kids up and running, get them going. And um, I think in the next... 10, 15 years we're going to start to see a real change in not just the Spanish domination thing because the the organisers want to see more people come in and uh, mm. really get them going in the world level and and it just yeah if you can get like growth markets like a an Indian rider a Chinese rider like some things like that for motorcycling it would it'd be huge for it wouldn't it oh it'd be fantastic yeah it'd be the it's exactly what we need because motorcycling is changing you know not just on um you know bikes are changing regulations are changing around the world the it's it needs to be one of those things where it's seen to be to be developing it never wants to be stagnant whether it's your whether it's your bike that you're testing whether it's the people that are riding it you know you always want to see young blood coming through and it proves the sport is you know, healthy in, and it has it has a, um, a following around the world which in turn drives the you know drives the economy of motorcycles you know more people buy bikes then more people buy helmets more people go watch MotoGP like it's all this big ecosystem that it's got to keep sort of feeding itself and guys like me can have a job and ride about motorbikes <laughs> yeah keep riding bikes did you uh, see any of the times from the latest test uh, yeah, yeah, I saw that Miller just smashed the lap record, which is pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Old Jack. Yeah. Yeah. Um, God, that bike he's on, it looks like he's riding a bloody spaceship. 
Well, they've they've all like this year. It's like um, they've all gotten fairly spacey looking, hasn't it? Like the new Aprilia is. Well, I sort of Paul Denning said uh, the World Superbike team manager Paul Denning said that the Aprilia looks like it's been crashed before it's been crashed. <laughs> <laughs> it looks for me, it looks like it got melted. Like it's yeah, like just of, yeah. but yeah, uh, exactly. but it still looks good. Like the Italians don't really build too much to look ugly, but it still no. looks good. But it just looks different, you know. So. Yeah, yeah, but Jack's Jack's lap record that's pretty um, pretty impressive. Yeah, I mean I'm frothing for the MotoGP to get back. I think we all are. Um, you know, the, I've we've, I've managed to placate the desire a little bit by going and watching AMA Supercross and all that kind of stuff. But nothing's as good as MotoGP in my book. So um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a good year. Now you've gotten to ride some of the. Um, some of the bikes that a lot of people would just dream of riding. You've gotten to ride Britons, or Britain, yeah. um, yep. RC30s, uh, Keanu Reeves Arch. I'm going to say Arch or Arc. I'm going to say it wrong either way. No, it's what's Arch, been, yeah. What's been one of the things that just stands out? Oh, um, I like think the best, the... Bike, the best bike I've ever ridden in terms of just like just sheer amazement was Johnny Ray's Volts of like. Um yeah. Like that was, and that was, I mean, I'm not really stating anything too obvious with that. I mean, like, it was just like you get on it, and it, I've never ridden anything that works so well. Um, the, I only ever got four laps on the thing anyway. And, um, you know, it sort of made me, made me laugh when, you know, you get, you get a lot of these guys that get out there and um, test those bikes, and then they say, like, a lot of the, journalists will go out there and test bikes that aren't pro racers that can't ride the things to the level and you know i mean i so i certainly couldn't ride the thing to the level of what anywhere near what a world superbike rider could do it um so for me it was just a it was just a joy ride really and um i just came off that thing just completely blown away it was just like this is amazing like you I mean it was so easy you could get on a ride to the shops no problem but, wow. but like i rode it at um uh, Aragon and in Spain and you know, I remember coming onto the back straight and I just went right I'm not going to back off this thing until it flips and <laughs> just uh, and just lit the fuse and, and and bang off she went and the noise that thing made was just amazing um, but that was cool um, when I was the probably the dumbest most insane bike I think I've ever ridden was um, I was working for Jeff Ware in um at Rapid Bikes magazine when that was still yeah. going when I was a when I was really new to the job, and there was a guy who had a GSX R750 chassis with a turbo high boozer motor in it, um, which had like 350 horsepower or something or other, and I got to ride that around Eastern Creek for a few laps, and that was just complete fucking lunacy. <laughs> but, just mental. Um, sorry. Just mental, mental thing. Just totally mental, totally mental. Yeah. And like, um, so yeah, that that was, I was happy to give that one back because that was just complete overkill. Um, you know, the Britain was great because it's the Britain. Um, yeah. You know, it's that's one of those bikes where it's a real. You get a real sense of occasion when you're around that kind of bike. Um, only ten of them ever made. Um, there's only two, I think, that actually get used. Um, there was, it's interesting there was a guy because uh, the, the Barber Motorsports Park out here in, in Alabama um, they've got a Briton out here and 
they mm. a couple of years ago they they did the festival of the Britons where they got I think it was nine of the ten Britons ever made and they got them all going um, all, all around the track and Andrew Stroud who was the original rider of the bike that I rode um, you know won the World Bears Championship on it and a few other bits and pieces he was out there racing the thing like properly giving it to this bike that's worth God, I don't know, a couple of mil probably. Yeah. Um, and the guy at the Barber Museum told me that their bike, their Britain, cost them. I think it was, a, I think it was forty bucks per per half a minute or something or other. They worked it out to be as long as that engine was going. It was every thirty seconds. It was costing them forty dollars. So, wow. Yeah, because they and they had to rebuild it every time. As soon as the thing comes, as soon as it's done an event, they pull the thing completely apart, rebuild everything themselves. Really. Yeah, because there's just there's no parts for it anymore. Everything's handmade, um, and everything is race handmade. So it's like it's like when you have the old old five hundreds that are all made of magnesium and all that stuff. Like it all goes to pieces eventually, and so they're super on top of these things because they're now they're not motorcycles now. They're investments. Um, mm. You know, if you were lucky enough to get one of the Britons, one of the ten Britons, you probably didn't pay a million bucks for it because I haven't seen one for sale for years. So they've just gone and they're for sure are worth well over a million now um, wow. so that was super cool like um, the the funny thing was with that bike was I got to ride it at the um, what's you call it the vintage festival down at um, Broadford um, uh, the, um, Broadford the Bike Bonanza Easter, Easter one uh, yeah yeah yep. and uh, Kevin Grant who owned the thing um, like I got I basically pulled dad in and I said get me on that bike I'm not asking him you got to ask him and so like he kind of massaged him to let me get on the bike <laughs> and, and I got on the bike and they gave me this Brit, this million dollar Briton with stone cold tyres so stone cold slicks and so I hopped on this thing and there's a huge crowd of people around this thing that fire the thing up and I hopped on it and I managed to just kind of was like going through like a paparazzi style crowd and I managed to wow. get through it and didn't stall a thing, thank God. And got out onto the track, just tried to get some heat in the tires and just to make the thing work because I just think didn't want to turn, didn't want to do anything. I'm like, man, if I crash this thing, like I'm done. Uh-huh. Like there's just, so I two or three laps just to slowly get heat into the things. And then in the fourth lap, it kind of woke up a little bit, a little bit of heat in there. I was like, all right, cool, we can do it now. And then it had, then Kevin holds out the, the board that says in and I'm uh. like bugger that and I went around and I went around again and it said in in anyway I did nine laps and by the time that I'd come around for the ninth time it just went in 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 and so I like, alright better, <laughs> better pull it off <laughs> so came back in because wow. I knew I was never going to get a chance to ride one of those things again so I was just like okay. and I actually I came down the hill into the pits and I stalled it but it looked like I did it on purpose so I just kind of rolled it in and just like came into it and was like thank god <laughs> wow it was was it a was it good yeah it was it was really yeah. good it was one of those things where you got to learn to trust it a bit it has a because it's got that the different front end on a like a I think yep. it's a Hossack style front, it's a Hossack style front end um, it does have a it's a bit like a BMW GS in a way and like Yes, it's there, it's working, but it doesn't have that same type of really connected feel that you get with a pair of forks. Um, 
so you just and especially with the cold tires too like you had to get heat in the tires if the you know the proper racing tires they weren't that that was a thing like they were racing slicks like you could have put me out on probably super corsair sp um pirellis or something rather yep. that were the you know treaded tires and it would have been fine um so you really have to sort of massage the th- massage the heat into it and get it to work properly and uh, but once it did, yeah, it was it was super cool and um, definitely like like I mean I rode the RC forty five a couple of years ago and, and it's the same type of thing like a modern bike would just smoke it um, yeah but you had to look at what it was for its time um, what made it special. Um, and the fact that it has such a cult following now, um, you know, they're like the unicorn bikes, the Britons, and anyone who's mm. into bikes that sees a Briton, they just you know, bow down at the temple kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, they just melt. Yeah, yeah. They, um, cool. there, there's uh, there's one floating around, and I don't know the full history of it, but there's like a green and gold one. Have you seen that one? Uh, they had a, I had have a, actually, yeah, yeah, I have. Yeah. I, I think that's in the museum in um, Pedersen. Uh, Pedersen Museum. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I I've seen, seen it in the Pedersen one. Museum. I'm like, mate, I've never, never seen it until that point. And far out, it looks really cool as a green and gold light. It does, yeah, yeah. So they ever, they only ever had the. I don't know why it's green and gold to be honest. Um, but they had the the CR and S ones, um, the yellow and black ones. And then they had the, the blue and pink ones that everyone knows about. And, yeah, I think that was a one-off job that, that old mate did, man. You would want to be sure of yourself if you're going to go painting a Briton. Oh, man. <laughs> you wouldn't want to be just your local guy with a couple of crayons, no. would you? <laughs> exactly. You, you better be sure of yourself. <laughs> have you uh, have you taken the time to have a good look around that barber place in Alabama? Yeah. Barber Park? Yeah. yeah, I have a few times. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's, I mean you, that's the cathedral like there's there's really no other have you been there yeah i have yeah 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 i mean christ you know it's like that is the that's like going to church for for a motorcyclist like the way everything is laid out like the and and every kind of bike that's there too like um yeah it sort of reminds me i got i'll tell you a different one in a minute but yeah like the um the cylinder sort of design of the building um, it has a real aura about the place and there's bikes hanging from the roof and bikes coming out of the floor and out of the, out of the walls and uh, yeah, you just yeah you just can't believe it and if you get lucky you get to go downstairs into the into the machining shop and you see all the guys rebuilding the things by hand and you know the the rows and rows and rows of unobtainium parts that have come off Grand Prix bikes and super bikes and one-off bits and pieces like like AGS, AJS Porcupine stuff. They've got like boxes of AJS Porcupine stuff, which is just like, I mean, the box itself is worth more than most people's houses, just a box of parts. Um, so to see that kind of stuff is really, really cool. But, um, I was going to ask you that. Have you been lucky enough to go down to that, down, the, mm. the basement as such? Because you can see it from the top. You can They've got, say, there's like... For people listening, there's like an elevated platform. You can look down and you can see like glass windows, restoration bay. So you've been into that area, yeah? Yeah, I have. Yeah, I, wow. I was there. I was there last year actually when I raced at Barber for the Vintage Festival, and um, 
Yeah, it is. It's it's wild down there. Like the guys are, they're like little elves, you know. <laughs> Santa's workshop, I think. Of it. You know, they're just sitting down there, just burrowing away, just making all kinds of random stuff. Like this bloke was there, who was making a metallic switch block. You know, like, and if you're into that kind of stuff, you just geek out on all that kind of yep. stuff. And it's like it was for they they found they were working on the the first Yamaha that ever came into the US. They managed to find it in some guy's barn and. God knows where. Um, yeah, it was literally, there was an old school, a yellow tank, um, an old round, sort of like an oval-shaped number board that had the headlight kind of just like jimmied onto the thing and they brought that into this. It was a yellow one and a red tank one and they had both of them and they're restoring these things back to original and, um, yeah, so just just all that stuff. But, yeah, just wild, wild stuff to see. And it's, yeah, and cars and bikes. Like, if you're a car fan, head out there. If you're a bike fan, definitely don't miss it. It's, it's once we can travel For again, sure. it's a pretty damn cool spot. What do oh, you reckon of the tracks? Amazing. I loved it. I absolutely really? love that circuit. Yeah, I think it's great. Um, I've ridden, I think I've done three races there. Um, luckily, I haven't had to race there in the middle of July with, well, the when the AMA guys go there because it's, it's about about ninety nine percent humidity and about forty degrees Celsius. Um, wow! Like it's you know it's just agonizing. Like you, the guys that get through the the two the two superbike races there are gladiators. But um, wow! Yeah, the, I've been there in the in the in the end of the year where it's been nice and cool and all that. But I mean that place is really like a it's like a country club almost for, um, you know, it's almost like a golf course. Um, mm. and you, you sort of, you, you go in there and the greens are perfectly manicured. Like the, everything is just top level stuff. Cause, um, Mr. Barber, um, is, he made all his money in milk. Um, mm. you know, the, you know, the, he's, he's the milk baron basically of the South and, uh, in the States. And so he, and he's not a the interesting thing is he's not like a family motorcyclist. I don't think he's he comes from a you know family that's obsessed with bikes. Like he just got into bikes and um and and has always been into his cars, as you say as well. Like he's he's certainly into his racing cars and he's got a bunch of Formula One cars and things like that there. But yeah, he's definitely got a soft spot for bikes. I don't even know if he rides, to be honest, but um yeah, we were hanging out with the curator there last year and he was telling us a bunch of different stories. And, you know, here though there's an entire department there that basically goes through and searches for for lots of bikes, you know, like they'll there might be a a guy in Italy that has twenty Jaleras and, you know, they'll flick them off to the States or whatever. It's a bit like what happened when um the Phillip Island Museum managed to get all of those kajivas um yep all, all, all those kajivas and the aprilias and all i mean i know that the barber museum would have loved to have that 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 collection so philip island did did good with that one um but yeah there's they're always buying bikes always buying wow. bikes which is it's pretty cool <laughs> yeah it's good that someone with that level of money is is that into bikes that he's willing to build something like that that everyone can go and see yeah, and you, you've described it exactly right. It's like a country club. Like you go into mm. the place and it's, yeah, it's state of the art. It really is. The um, Is that yeah. what happened with the Phillip Island for the Gillette, for the Aprilia's and that, that they got down there? They bought it. They're not a consignment. That's a... I don't think so, but I, then I don't know. Uh, I'm yeah. not 100% sure. I, I, I was told by somebody that they'd bought them. Yeah. But maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I, I, I went there. 
I've only ever been there once. Um, I mean, I've been to Phillip Island a million times, but I'd only had been into the museum part once. Um, And I think the bikes had been there for a couple of years. That was at the 2019 Island Classic that I was there. And um, I think the bikes have been there for a little bit. I'm pretty sure they bought them, but who knows? I mean, they seem like they're permanently there now. So it's a – that – yeah, guys in Australia have got to go and see that. Like, if you're into Grand Prix history, like, you'll never see. I don't think anywhere in the world will you see Italian Grand Prix history collected in such a small room that you can basically mm. walk the history of the, at least the two-stroke era. Probably not so much the four-stroke with Envy Augusta and uh, Moto Guzzi and things like that, but definitely the two-stroke era. Like, you get all the all the the um, Aprilia's like Aprilia's that are won world championships with Gramini and Caparossi and Rossi and all that and you know all the 500 Kajivas with Eddie Lawson and John Kaczynski's bikes and Barros's bikes and all that I mean like to have that stuff in one spot at the world's greatest racetrack is is pretty damn cool <laughs> and it's crazy I've, I've only been in there into the uh, museum a handful of times but each time I go there I'm like the only one person that's in there like you can go there yeah and no one's in no one even sort of knows about it it's crazy no it's it's I, that's i couldn't agree with you more like it's it's ridiculous like i i mean i was there i must have been there for three hours like just and the and the the place is not big you know like the museum itself is not big but i sat there and oogled every little bike i just couldn't believe what i was looking at half the time like um they're all the bikes i had on my wall as a kid and I don't know. I mean, I I would love to see Phillip Island advertise that a little bit more because it is a amazing little sort of gem yeah. that, that Australians have got. And I bet most people don't even know about it. No, come GP weekend, like it's, it's just bad. No one goes there. It's, uh, yeah, it should be something that you know a bit more about. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Who's your tip for MotoGP this year? Uh, probably... I'm probably gonna go for Quattararo. Um I really want Jack to win it. Um, mm. I'd love to see Jack win it, but I feel like Quattararo's got a serious point to prove. Um, I really hope that. I don't know, man. It's hard. It's really, really hard this year. Um, but I think Quattararo's probably got the rocket up even pretty hard after going to pieces as the way he did last year. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, especially starting off so well, um, I'm looking forward more than anything to having Marquez back. Like it's, you know, as much as like you have, it'd be great with. Um, it's been great without him. We all know that he is still the king. So it's like he's got to he's got to come back, and they've got to beat him. But it's going to be interesting to see when he does come back what he's going to be like. Um, yeah, I, I think he'll. If he if he's good and he's healthy, there's no reason why he can't be as strong as he was before. But phew, you never know, man. Like uh, it's so it's so close this year. But I think I think Quattararo, but I'm hoping Miller. <laughs> yeah, I, I um I hope it's Miller. It'd be cool to see Miller. Um, Morbidelli had such a good end of the season. Yeah. If he can keep that yeah. confidence there, he'll be he'll be pretty exciting to watch too. I feel. Yeah, for sure. He's another one that's a total dark horse, and he's on the bike that. Is apparently a better bike, so all the Yamaha riders were saying. But um, yeah, the the preseason stuff you got to you got to be very like take it with a grain of salt a lot of the time. Um, 
yeah, I mean, Aprilia has been at the front for like, like with Aspargaro for the last three days, and I'll be amazed if that continues for the rest of the season. But I hope that I know that I'd love to see Aprilia get up there just for the just for the sake of it. Um, you know, I know how hard those guys are, are having to try, and I mean, they're dealing with a a budget that's a lot less than what a lot of uh, a lot of the other guys. I mean, you look at the budget that Red Bull KTM's got, which is just open checkbook kind of racing really with those guys and they've got they've managed to do you know 10 years worth of development in four um but Aprilia is on a much smaller budget so it'd be great to see if they could get out there and and have a go but one thing's for sure it's going to be a hell of a year like um and and usually the good thing is like usually Qatar is a ripper of a GP so hopefully it's going to come back with a bang yeah fingers crossed it should be cool what about world supers um, oh, uh, that one, I as much as I like Johnny Ray, I really hope someone else wins a championship. Like it's getting a bit doing-ish with that championship, to be honest. Um, I, I was like, I mean, you could never, you can never, um, you can never get mad at Johnny for doing what he's doing. But far out, I hope someone else wins it. Um, I, you know what, man, I would love to see Michael Vandermark get up there. Um, I want to see him get up on the BMW. I want to see the BMW get up more than I want to see Michael Vandermark get up because it's like that that bike is such a good bike, and they they just they've never had the luck in World Superbike. Um, yeah, I would just love to see something totally different like that. That or Reading, you know. I mean, Reading will be now now with two years under his belt, one year under his belt, but. Jeez, man, you you got to be if you're going to put twenty bucks down on Reading, you got to put ten bucks down on on Jonathan Ray because it's like he he's yeah just his insurance money exactly because like he's just so damn good and he, I mean I remember a couple of years ago with Bautista like I mean Bautista had that thing shot to bits, 140 points or something or other he was in front by. And and he just just exploded, and Ray just kept banking the points, and he does it every year. I mean, I mean, it's like what what Mir did last year. Mir, Mir won one race and won the championship. So, um, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's another dark horse. Mir might be all right, but I mean, uh, it's lucky that I can't really find anywhere to bet on MotoGP in the states because otherwise I'd probably go broke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I reckon I would too, especially last year, nine winners or whatever it was. It was crazy. I, well, it's, I'm part of this. I'm part of a tipping contest, and um, that's done by the Aussie guys in Australia. And I won it two years in a row in sixteen and seventeen. And last year, I finished like thirty eighth or something. <laughs> I was just like, I was like, God, that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's but it's, it was hard. Like yeah, last year was uh, yeah. Uh, in a, in a regular regular year. Um, I reckon Rossi could have got a 10th last year. Like, mm. you know, there was just a few things that went a bit sideways in there and obviously COVID and those crashes yeah. and that in the middle. But in a regular year, um, that was nearly there for the taking of consistency, hey? For sure. Well, I mean, the guy that wrecked himself was Davizioso. Like, you know, he, yeah, he, that was his year to do it. But then again, the Ducati didn't work with the, with the rear Michelin and, that was it kind of thing. But Jack managed to make it work. Um, like he, he was consistently up to front. And um, I think Jack 
this year, like Jack's got a lot of pressure on him too this year because there's not just the the fact that they haven't that Ducati hasn't won a championship for one of 2007 when Stoner won it, but there is a there is a real history of Aussie riders doing good at Ducati. Um, you know, so there's that too. I mean, obviously that's the last thing on Jack's mind, but there's Ducati really wants to bury the ghost of Casey Stoner's world championship, man. They should have won a bunch more between now and then. And had it not been for Marquez, they would have won three of them. So, um, and now that Jack's got a bit of a head start without Marquez there, um, I think he's he's going to be hard. He'll, be, he'll definitely be up the front. Um, and I hope for hope for him he does do it because we might end up seeing another golden era for Australian racing. Like if we have um, if Remy gets up there because Remy's another one with a lot of pressure on him too. Like um, Remy's in arguably the best team in Moto2. Um, it's got a direct path to MotoGP. Uh, he's the son of a legend. You know, he's been in Moto2 for quite a number of years now, gradually getting from, you know, getting a little bit better team, a little bit better bike. But now he's in he's in the pole position, so he's he's got a lot of pressure on him. And I really hope that he can pull it off because he's certainly talented enough. And I always like seeing the second generation of champions come through and, yeah, it proves that there's something in the genes at that point. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And he he seemed like he's matured an awful lot over the last two years too. Like I think that motocross off. crash scared him a little bit. Yeah, that was. Dude, I was. Uh, I remember uh, he put a story Instagram story up when he tipped his boot out. It was full of blood. <laughs> I was like, oh man, just that was a gnarly crash. I remember talking to him at Coda last year or the year before. Sorry. And um, yeah, I think that knocked a few, knocked a bit of sense into him. And um, he's definitely a very good rider. Um, you know, the guys, like the whole family, very much like the Stoners did. You know, the 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 family got up and moved and went over there and um, and and did the whole job. So it's time for Remy, Remy now to to get up there because he is a big guy too. Like he's a he's a taller kid, so he needs to get on a bigger bike soon enough and um yeah hopefully it's hopefully it works out for him what i really appreciate with remy is off season he's sitting there on the lathe he's sitting there making his own you see him on social media and working on his own bikes like working on his own cars and stuff like that i think that's really cool you know he's not just oh yeah gallivanting around i think that's really neat to see like it's like he's a he's a very talented kid yeah Um, totally self-taught like he's a he's a really technically gifted young guy um, which is great to see. The special, it's really cool when you see the MotoGP guys have interests other than just riding bikes. <laughs> Definitely. It's cool. Uh, yeah. I find that really neat. Do you keep track yeah. of the Australian stuff still? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, I mean, I've, I haven't got, I haven't been in as deep into it as what I was when I was at AMCN when I was doing the sports editing stuff and all that. But, um, you know, looking at the Aussie championships now, it looks pretty healthy, but again, I'm only looking from the outside. Um, it's funny too. Like, there's a. I would love to see some young blood get into the, get up the front and give guys like Maxwell and Starring and all those old 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 boys a, a run. Um, but you know, hey, they're they're still there. They're still doing it. They're still doing the times. Doesn't matter if they're 20 years old or 60 years old. Like, um, I would love to see. Uh, Ollie Bayless get up there and do something. Um, 
you know, now he's got Brent Stevens in his corner, uh, which is a real good thing to have. Um, yeah, so that that'd be great. I mean, it'd be good if Tom Taparis were to go off and um, you know get into the worlds and and start to crack the crack the big time because I think he's certainly good enough. Uh, yep. Ollie is still a bit young. It's kind of hard to know really what what the go is with with Ollie. I think you know he's going to be sort of eighteen, nineteen before you can really figure it out. But um, from talking you know with a few guys and and knowing like what Damien's doing with the the Moto Stars and the kids that are coming through there, it certainly seems like it's healthy. Um, which again, you know, it's like we were saying before, it's the the machine to keep feeding it, to keep powering the industry and. Um, yeah, I I would love to see some young blood get up and get into some of the big plum rides in Australia and keep the keep the talent factory going. Definitely, and what Damien's doing with Moto Stars has been huge. I think over these last few years, like you start yeah. to see you starting to see it filter through to some of the championships in that. So yeah, they're for doing sure. A good job, and he's mate. the right guy. He's the right Definitely. guy for it. You know, like he, I've known Damien for a long time, and um, you know he's he's got the contacts. He's done it the very hard way you know no one he was never given anything he always had to work for it i mean the guy was nearly in a wheelchair before he really cracked the big time so he he really sort of worked worked his ass off to make it make it happen so he knows all about hard work and and he's a good mentor for those kids like he he knows how to instill the the ethos the work ethos into these kids that you know mightn't get they mightn't get it from other mentors and um, so yeah, he's and plus you know if, I don't know, but maybe if he if he sees, sees a special one, he can he can put in a word and um, but yeah, he's he's doing a real good job of that. He should be commended for that. Yeah, highly, and you know it's something something that Australia has missed out on for lots of years, and yeah, it seems like yeah. they're doing a good job of it. Yeah, well, the metric kit stuff. I remember back in uh, t- like two thousand eight to twelve. Eight, really, nine. they had the yeah, yeah the the. Motor MRRDA it was yeah, um, mm. where you know Jonesy and all those boys came out of it like that was and that was another good, really good lot of kids that came out of that that sort of series. But then of course it sort of fell away and sort yep. of it's hard to keep this kind of thing going. And prior to that, I remember the the Morawaki eighties um, of you know back in the nineties where you had Anthony West, Brock Parks, Scotty Charlton. Um, you know, all those guys came through out of that series as well. So it it sort of proves that there is really good riders. There are great riders in Australia. There always has been. They just need to have that, you know, boost to get them to get them into the on on bikes early, get them going. Yeah. Um, you know, Ben Spees put a thing up recently on his Instagram saying that if you want your kid to be in Grand Prix, you need to have him on a GP bike like a Moto3 or a pre-Moto3, you need to have them on it early because the kids in Spain are doing that stuff by the time they're 12. Wow. Um, and, you know, that, and that's just the hard facts of the thing. Like the game has definitely changed a lot. Like, um, you know, unfortunately, the world is not really looking to Australia or the US or, you know, some, in some cases even the UK for the next star. They're looking in Spain and Italy and stuff like that. So it's up to Australians and and the the rest of the world to kind of go knocking on doors and show them that that we're good riders. So, um, but it all starts at grassroots, and that's what Damien's doing. So yeah, he's doing a great definitely, job. Definitely, and I think, uh, I think it, it held us back a long time here, not having any smaller bikes. Uh, you know, the metric hit the eighty, and then it drop off for a bit, and that 
And then for a period, it wasn't until you were 16 that you could really get onto a track because there was yeah, no bikes to, to do it on. Yeah, that, that that's, a, that's a bummer. That was a real mm. shame because a lot of kids missed out as a result of yep. that. Um, yeah, I mean, I go out and ride, you know, I try and get out once a week, but work's been so mental that I try and go out every two weeks now. But I've got an Ovale downstairs and I've got a supermoto bike. And yep. now go-kart tracks around the country are finally opening up to this kind of stuff and letting guys go out and go riding. Before, I mean, when I was a kid, you could never ride on go-kart tracks. Like, yeah. if you had a bike, you, you, you had to wait till you were 16 to be able to go riding on a on a road race track. And too late by that stage. Um, you know, especially yeah. when you can get on an R15 now, or whatever they are, 25 Yamahas, and go rip around Phillip Island and learn the ra- learn the the race craft that's required to race a motorcycle at high speeds. Um, yeah, it's uh, the the opportunities that these kids now have got is pretty cool, man. Pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. You pin- you'd pinch yourself as a kid like that. Well, you probably wouldn't because you're just rolling with it. But it, you yeah. get to a point where you go, wow, that's a pretty cool opportunity I had. Oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, you you like to think that kids are going to go, oh, I'm so lucky, but they probably don't know. You know, nah. yeah, when it's you're, when you're a teenager. <laughs> Yeah, just roll with it. Hey, what's your supermoto? Yeah. What do you got? You got a Husky? Uh, I got a Husqvarna, yeah, Husky 450. Um, yeah, nice. I, I was at a press day, uh, the press launch for that in 2018 at the go-kart track. And I'd already built, I'd already sort of turned myself on to supermoto because I always wanted to give it a go. And it was another thing that with Cycle News, I was like, screw it, I'm going to go build a supermoto. So we're, I managed to get a um, RMZ 450 and I threw a couple of just some wheels on it and just some wheels and brakes and went riding on it. it had totally motocross suspension and I was like oh this is great fun and then Husky brought out the FS 450 and I did two laps on it and I pulled back in and I said you're not getting this bike back <laughs> so I I rode it for the rest of the day put it in the van and took it home and yeah. um, you basically just took it off them and gave and had it as a long-term press bike and then they came to me and said all right you either need to buy it or you need to give it back I'm like all right, well, you're not getting it back. Here's your money. <laughs> I bought it off. Wow. <laughs> so, Is it a good thing? I love it. I just love yep. it. Um, I wish I'd known about it earlier. Um, mm. That style of riding is just so much fun. And it's so intense. Um, yep. You know, when you're, you're doing like, – I, I did the AMA championship uh, with Chris Fillmore back in – back last month, last year, sorry, in 2020 down in Arizona – and you just don't get a break. Like, I mean, it's, you're constantly going, constantly going. I mean, I can't, I couldn't jump out of the way of a train, so I'm still trying to figure out how to jump. But yep. like, um, the, I mean, I'm pretty good on the, I'm all right on the flat track sort of dirt stuff and all that. And obviously, when it comes to the road racing part, I'm all right. But um, yeah, it's a, it is such good fun to ride, and I'm constantly surprised that more people aren't aren't doing it. But then again, like the the thing was so huge in the States in the mid 2000s and it really just dives, fell off a cliff and now it's, it's slowly starting to come back. But as a form of training, there's, there's very little that I could think of for my age and skill level that I would rather do. So you never did that in Australia before you went? No. Never had a go? No. No, I never did. Um, yeah, the, it was always a case of like uh, racing back then was always just like if I got the chance to race something, I did. But... Yep. Supermoto in Australia was never really that big either. Um, 
you know, I mean, it, it kind of came and went. There were there are the odd races that were good. I, mean, I remember Mark Avard and those boys were doing those things yeah. um, back in the late 90s. And um, I remember when we had the, the Supermoto GP at Broadford couple of, for a couple of years. And um, But, yeah, again, that just kind of gradually fell off the wayside. And when the manufacturers stopped building the bikes or selling prepped bikes to yeah. you, then... Um, it became a lot harder because you had to physically go out and build your own super motorbike, which a lot of people didn't want to do, um, myself included, to be honest. Um, yeah. You know, and once once these things came out now with that are factory prepared super motorbikes, you got no excuse now. Get on there, put put fuel in the thing, and go. And um, yeah, awesome fun, awesome fun. That um that four fifty, well, I've got the FE four fifty. Oh yeah, and, yeah. Um, it's such a good, same as the KTM. It's such a beautiful motor ride, mate. Yeah, it sure is. It sure is. They're, um, I'm constantly amazed at how good 450 motocross bikes are. Um, yeah. Like just when you consider they're just a single cylinder bike, man, you can do some good stuff with them. And the engines are so strong that it's just a, they're an amazing uh, piece of engineering, those motocross bikes now. Like there's very little thing. I, I raced a, a uh, YZ 450 when they were doing the 450 FX 450 GP class back in like 2013 uh, they ran alongside the Formula Extreme Championship I was going to um, ask you about this just when they put fairings yeah. and that, you could buy a kit through Yamaha is that right mate? yeah that's right, Yamaha, that right yeah that's right sorry got a bit of a interference there um, yeah the yeah that's right we got Beyond kits out of Spain because um, it, it all started because Terry O'Neill was wanted to get this championship going, which uh, which at the ideally actually sounded like a pretty cool idea. Um, and you know, the Roland Sands was out doing the same thing out in the states, and it looked like it was getting a bit of traction worldwide. So they decided to bring it to Australia. And I did uh, one of the races in 2012 on a bike that Terry built himself and. Um, and then I was like, oh, this is great. I'm going to do it. So I went and bought an FS, uh, F, uh, not FS, so YZ450, gave it to Big Rob at uh, Central Coast Performance and, and he put it all together. But, yeah, we used a, a Beyond kit out of Spain, which was forks, wheels, brakes, and bodywork. It ran the yeah. same frame, same swing arm. Um, obviously, you had rear sets and handlebars and things like that. But you look at the thing and it looked like a Grand Prix bike. It looked like a little Moto 3 bike or something. It was super cool. And um, But, yeah, the, you know, I say I'm impressed with, motor, with, with longevity of motocross bikes. When they're used in supermoto and motocross applications and things like that, they're great. I think mine was the only one that didn't blow up in the whole year. Really? <laughs> so, just yeah, stretching its legs? Because they were just – they're motocross bikes. They're designed to go, you know, like – motocross style and but yep. when you're going around road racing the things are just maxed on red line the whole time it's i remember once uh, one of the guys at um uh wakefield park when you come into you come off the top right hander down the to the fish hook i think they call it um the the right hander and then the left yep i remember seeing a puff of smoke coming out of the guys i think it's byron mills's bike um puff of smoke came out went oh and i moved and his piston went ping and straight past my head (laughs) yeah it was just like it smashed through the front of the case pulled itself out smashed out of the back and then on the next stroke it's from bang 
and it just went yeah. fired out the back. And you could like I remember going, I was like, because he crashed, obviously, oil went everywhere. And and I, I went came into him pits afterwards. And, you know, man, you all right? And like, he goes, check this out. He has bike on the stand, and you could look through the forks and see out the shock. He looked through the engine and see the shock. Oh jeez, <laughs> it's like a bullet. <laughs> yeah, so, totally. It just completely obliterated that motor. So that was probably not the best use of that engine. But yeah, yeah. it was a. It was a cool, it was a really cool racing series. That um, yeah, we got to yeah. run with a lot of guys. It was good fun. And that was a spot like Wakefield. You think of a place like that, you might, you might maybe get away with it a bit more. Hey, you know, a bit more yeah. on and off, but still. Sketching. I think it's also like you know having raced at Eastern Creek and or Sydney Motorsports yep. Park and other bits and pieces where it's flat out. It's it's never a case of one one rpm it's consistent high rpms over a long time that wear things out and yeah and then it's off she went that's <laughs> ah, a shame my uh, my one we were out doing an enduro just this last weekend talking about before uh before we recorded riding along in yeah. the bush stick between i don't have the smallest legs in history in between my leg and straight up and crack the plastic off the back of the fuel injector <laughs> So just the clip, I don't know, like it's one of those one of a million things. So deep in the bush up in the back of Gippy, next thing, no, no power. So yeah, oh, she's, no. a full, she's a full one-piece fuel injector. So out, out we get, tow it out. And, mate, that's one of those freak things that can happen sometimes, eh? Oh, dude, totally. Yeah. I remember I got a funny story about smashing bikes. It was like I was riding with uh, Daryl Beatty and um, Mike Heaton, who used to work at, from um, Channel like, he used to do all the MotoGP stuff and um, uh, we were riding the new KTM Adventures and um, I came off a little rise and the bike just like like someone pulled the plug out of the wall and I was like, what the hell happened? And the bike just stopped and then I look at the back and the brains of the bike had just got scattered up the trail of this 1190 adventure. <laughs> and then I think wow. apparently, apparently it was a shock bolt that was loose and so the thing just went punch and just went straight through the, the the whole brains of the bike just went everywhere i was like well that sucks <laughs> so, yeah so we, we managed to get it going amazingly then i got sort of bought it back but the whole thing was stuffed but yeah it's, uh, was this press bike it was yeah oh jeez <laughs> not cool Oops. No. was this in australia yeah yeah yep. it was uh, it was um 2013 that was so Sorry to KTM. <laughs> yeah. What's one of your, um, what's one of your weirdest press things you've done? Press launch. What's one of the strange things? Yeah, what's been one of the strangest things you've come across? Oh, man. Been for a lot of years now. Jesus, that's an open question. Um, most of the stuff I couldn't tell you, I'd have to tell you over the, I'd have to tell you in a non-podcast stuff because yeah. <laughs> you get antics you can get up to in, um, yeah. Um, yeah. in some of those places are pretty wild um, yeah we've actually yeah one time the, the gnarliest press ride was we are in Spain and we were doing the MT07 launch MT07 uh, 2017 I think it was and uh, yeah it was we, we were up at Ronda which is like in the south of Spain Um Gorgeous area, absolutely stunning. And um, it started raining and it started raining and started raining. And by the end of it, two or three of the guys had just given up and they're just like, no, we're not doing this. And we came back down the freeway, uh, like, because it's a mountain road. And I'm not kidding, it was like, you know, when you get sideways rain, like, you don't think it's coming from you, just look at it's coming from the side. 
yeah. we got back and it was just one of those times where we all got back and we were like, holy shit, like no one's died. Like because we was just we were hanging on the side of the cliff and uh, it was just mental. But I think the um, the best, uh, the, the gnarliest ride I ever did was actually with Adam Ferguson. Um, yeah. Um, you know, Krusty Ferguson back in the day. Well, this is at AMCN. This is ten years ago, so I could probably tell the story. It's like uh, we we were doing our superbike test, and um, this is at AM, uh, yeah, twenty ten. So we had ten ninety eight Ducati, GSXR one thousands, um, bunch of, like all the all the bikes. So anyway, we were running across uh, the great the Alpine Highway, whatever it is, from Threadbow to Jindabyne, um, that whole area, like over the snowies. And yep. we were, we pulled into Gin to Threadbow itself, and we all swapped bikes. And um, Krusty was like, "All right, we're gonna we're gonna pin it to Jindabyn." And dude, it was wild. Like we got to Jindabyn. I don't know how long. It didn't take long. It was like ten minutes or something to get to Jindabyn. Like it was just flat out on these bikes. That like if we'd got busted, we would have all been straight to jail. And uh, so we we pull in like me and the deputy editor of AMCN and my friend Simon and Krusty. And Krusty was on the Ducati. And we're filling up the bike, and Krusty brings in brings this Ducati in, and it's um, pearl white 1098, and there's yeah. smoke coming out the back of it, and I've got an open fuel tank just here. I'm like, what are you? What the hell is that? And then he gets off, and the whole thing just goes, <laughs> and just engulfs itself in flames. And we're like, oh shit! And so we're like, put the bloody fuel cap on and like throw the fuel thing away. And um, yeah, the whole literally the whole back of the bike was in flames, and I'm like, fuck, like we got the we got it all done. And Krusty's just sitting there, this bewildered look on his face. And we'd kind of figured out, we 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 kind of figured out, or at least I think this is what happened. Is like the thing had Krusty had that thing pinned for so long that because the exhaust was glowing hot, and I think yeah. what had happened was the the wind had basically been blowing out the, I think it pretty much, um, you know, burnt the exhaust rubbers or burnt the bodywork or something or other. So that yeah. when the wind eventually stopped, it just went woof, straight up because the flames were waiting to go, waiting to go. And without the, yeah. with it, without it, it was like, um, uh, yeah, once he'd got, once he'd sort of stopped, the whole thing just decided to ignite <laughs> and throw the thing up in flames. Oh man. That's a, um, that's a man that can ride a motorcycle, eh? Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was. Sorry, I'm just getting that. Um, yeah, he was. He's an amazing rider, Krusty Ferguson. Um, uh, you know, this, I mean, since I've been in the states too, like I've heard a lot of stories about how good he was on those Corona Extra uh, Suzukis and things that he used to ride. And um, yeah, he's a he's a hell of a rider, really, and a and a really lovely guy as well. Um, you know, always he always had a lot of time for me, especially back in the in the early days. Like I was still pretty new to the game, and he was a bit of a hero. And um, you know, won like the Super Sport Championship and the Super Bike Championship in Australia in the first year. I think he was actually the first to do that. I might be wrong. I might be wrong there, but yeah, I'm pretty sure right. he was the first one. Yeah, and then it became a bit of a thing. And I think Brooksy did it the following year, and then um, I think Jamie Stauffer did it as well. But I'm pretty sure Krusty was the first one. So yeah, he was a bit of a bit of a hero to sort of hang out with, and really a lovely guy. And um, you know, could drink his weight for sure. Probably still can. <laughs> yeah, probably knows how to party. So yeah, um, yeah. No, there's a there's many a story of uh, Krusty around. 
Yeah, yeah. No, he's a good dude. Really cool guy. You're talking about pouring down rain and everything. So for people that are listening to this point, if you can hear anything in the background, it's, it's absolutely pouring down here. So uh, if the audio is a bit distracted, that is um, probably part of the reason. So sorry about that. Yeah, yeah, I can hear it over here, and I'm on the other side of the world. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it, mate. You're in California. So what do you what do you think of print media at the moment? How how is the world of motorcycling journalism? How is the world in in uh, that that sort of neck of the woods? Um, it's pretty dismal, gotta say. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's not that pre- it's not that media is bad. No, not bad. It's not the media itself is suffering. It's just the delivery of media. Um, I mean, I've got to be honest. I can't tell you the last time I bought a magazine. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's everyone gets their information via. I mean, if you yeah, it's, it's on your phone, and yeah. it's really tough for print media to to make a real go of it. You've got to be really different for it to work. The old um, style is very very difficult to monetize now. Um, There'll never be a replacement for the tactile feel of a magazine. I mean, I had my head buried in bike magazines from the day I could read. Um, and all I ever wanted to do was either race for a living or be a bike channel. Um I don't know how the bike industry as a whole is going to deal with that, although they probably already have, to be honest. Like, everything is really online and it's like it becomes – a bit of a bummer really that the romance has gone a little bit out of it. Um, certainly now having worked purely online for the last sort of sort of seven or eight years, the workload has gone up tremendously because there's, you have to get the, you have to get it out, especially now when it's news. If it's more than a day old, it's not news. Um, and that's not unique to the motorcycle game. That's new. Just, that's just the nature of news. So, um, you know, guys like AMCN and all that kind of stuff. Like I remember when, like AMCN definitely is still a fantastic magazine. It's a, and I'm very, very proud to have, to have worked there and worked under some good guys and, and, um, you know, having you know, got mentored by Mick Matheson and that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, but it's, it's gotta be a tough game, um, to, to be print, to be doing print mags. I mean, for example, Cycle News got rid of print mags 10 years ago, 12 years ago, actually. Wow. Um, yeah, so it's, it's all online. And, but then you, the problem is then you re, with websites is you reduce the amount of availability for advertising. Um, you are solely reliant on, um, website hits. Uh, it's not like you can, sell 40 different pages of advertising you know you have a landing page and then you have certain other pages within there that you can sell advertising to but you do have much limited scope for advertising so as a result overall revenue goes down um this is just the the world we live in now um it's becoming very specialized so it's hard Mm. um the but a lot of guys are still doing it you know i mean mcn is still doing it in the UK and still doing it pretty well from what I hear. Um, Cycle World out here in the States, you know, the very the world's famous Cycle World, they got rid of their print publication last year. The year before that was Motorcyclist Magazine. They're gone. That was the oldest running motorcycle magazine in the world as far as I was aware. It started in like 1910 or something. Um, that's gone too. Um, yeah, it's hard. It's it's there's no other way around it. It's it's a it's a tough situation to be in in print these days. 
Now, do you, do you think um, video is going to be like the uh, like I see I see your videos and that that you do, which well done yep. too. Like you know my business is video and that you guys are killing it yeah. for that. Um, do you think do you think um, that's going to be more more of the thing than than article? Or it is. It is really. I mean, it almost already is. If I'm perfectly really? honest, like um, it's a package. You got to do it as a package. You know, like we are pushing constantly at Cycle News now for video uh, to do more video. Um, but you, you can't just do video. You've got to do words as well because the videos go to one place. It goes to YouTube. Um, yep. So you know you and you can put them on Vimeo and all our, on the other bits and pieces. But everyone goes to YouTube. So you get revenue out of those guys. If you can get your video sponsored, uh, you can make a little bit of money out of that. Um, but you also want to link it back to your own website so you can then start to get, you can drive traffic to your own website. But it's got to be a package thing. And manufacturers, at least from my experience, manufacturers are, are looking for both. Um, you know, you certainly have the rise of the YouTuber, I guess, YouTubers, of which I'm probably part of it, I guess. I mean... I'm sort of a, a, a you know unwilling TV presenter in a way. Like I just had to do it by default. Yeah. <laughs> I'm much more comfortable writing a story than I am being in front of the camera. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, there's the some of the YouTube YouTube bike guys, especially the states, man. Like some of those guys have huge followings, huge followings, which you know, like you, it's very difficult to ignore that stuff if you're in a manufacturer. Um, yeah, the but endemic media, you know, motorcycle media, they we all have our own place. Um, but yeah, there's a lot less advertising dollars to go around these days, and um, you got to be creative to be able to try and get your point across. But you know, sort of circling back, yeah, video is for sure the 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 now thing. It's not the next thing; it's the now thing. Yeah. No, it's super interesting as a outside perspective, just seeing how it's changed over the years and. I don't know. I'm one of the silly ones that have got um, archive boxes at home full of AMCNs, dirt actions, ADBs, yeah. whatever it is. They're still sitting there. I still buy yeah. them, not as many as I yeah. used to, but I still get them every now and then, like the yearbooks and that. But uh, yeah, it's just hard to find what the next uh, the next thing is, you know? Yeah, I mean, like print media. Like, I mean, if you look at magazines like ADB, like Australasian Dirt yeah. Bike Magazine, you know, I mean, that's still the, an excellent magazine. You know, Mitch yep. that runs that, he knows what he's doing. And it's and Australia is lucky in that we have very, very good magazines. You know, there I saw I the the Adventure magazine, I can't remember what it is. Um uh the, there's two of them now. Um mm. there's Adventure Rider and there's another one. Um but the they're really high quality magazines, they're really brilliant things. And uh and a lot of a lot of countries don't have that. Um so they they have their own place as well. Um, I mean, which is quite interesting considering that like there's a lot of websites in Australia. Plus, there's a lot of print magazines, and we have a much smaller population of writers than basically everywhere else in the world. You know, yep. I mean, certainly in comparison to the US and Europe and things like that. So we have a lot of mags for our for our given population, and they're very high quality mags with excellent photography, good writing all the stuff that makes a good mag and a magazine will have its own experience that a website just can't produce or a YouTube video just can't produce. Um, so they, they will certainly have their place. I think it's definitely more for the older crowd. I don't really know that any kids in from 
10 years old to 25 are out there buying magazines really because they get all their they get all their information off their phones yeah that's it it's uh yeah just the way it is eh? it's just evolved yeah it is what it is you just you gotta like you look at stuff like i mean i got friends out here that all they do is look at tiktok and you know it's that has its own place as well um there's so many different platforms and sorry do you use it no no i've got a tiktok account actually i looked at it um just for the just for the hell because a friend of mine was like man you gotta try it gotta try it so i tried it and yeah i mean that's a that's a rabbit hole in itself but um I don't think TikTok's really the the go for motorcycle um, reviews because you're doing you got minute long videos. I mean, I don't know what you can say about a bike in a minute, um, but yeah, there's all kinds of ways that people are trying to do. There's I've seen Instagram magazines where instead of you have um, instead of having your photo or your seven or eight different photos, you have a photo and you have a photo of text and then a photo and then a photo of text. So instead of just putting it all in the bio. You can have a flip style magazine thing on your phone for Instagram. Um, yeah. There's a couple of car guys that do that, um, which is also well, that, that's really cool as well. That's a, that's thinking out the box a little bit as well. Yeah, it still gives you some sort of you know tactile thing a little bit too, doesn't it? You know, a little bit. Yeah, nothing's going to replace that. No. Um, and they, I mean, as you say, you got you got archives, which keep them, man. Don't get rid of them. <laughs> Yeah, well, they're getting harder to move each time, but um, so, but they're uh, they're good to go back to. You know, every now and then you go back and have a look at, you know, '98. You look at the R1 launch, or you look at this and that. There's yeah. some pretty cool things, you know. So for sure, dude. Um, yeah, there's lots of cool know. stuff in there. I think we're yeah. around fairly similar age, and you'll probably remember it. Like vivid memory of uh, Ferrari F40 versus the ZZR 1100. That was one of yeah. the colours as a kid, and I'm like, that's something that'll just burn into your into your brain as a motorcyclist. And for sure, um, I, I don't know if you get that anymore. You know, just don't, yeah. I don't know. I just remember reading that. I think it was even Wheels Mag actually that did it. It was like a collab, basically. It was pretty cool, you know, at the time. Yeah, I remember back. I was working at AMC, and I got to do a similar story where we had a Ferrari California and a Ducati 1098. And yeah. um yeah, we it was um we called it the wank story, which was like <laughs> I was in the in the dead of summer, I had to be in full leathers in oh, in Sydney City and we rode and drove around Sydney City with a photographer like perched on the side of each street corner that we stopped to see who what thing got the most looks. Of course, it was the bloody Ferrari that got the most looks, but I was sitting yeah. there drenched in sweat. And at the end of the <laughs> thing, I was saying, you're giving me a drive in that Ferrari, man. So we got, yeah. managed to get on it and then get out of there. It was great. <laughs> oh, mate. So your time at AMCM was with Mick Matheson at the helm? Uh, no, Matho was the previous editor, um, but he was still quite involved. Um, just just hang on two secs. Sorry. Well, yeah. Two minutes. Um, um, I've got the kids at the door. Matho <laughs> um, was the previous editor and I got on uh, with Matt Shields originally. Yep. Um, so Shieldsy uh, was with me. I was with Shieldsy, sorry, for two years, I think it was. And then Sam McLaughlin took over and I was with him for another two. Yep. Um, yep. So, yeah, they, they were really good guys to, to work for. Um, you know, Sam was very knowledgeable and so was Shieldsy. Um, Shieldsy gave you a bit of 
Shieldy was good because he gave you a lot of rain and sort of a lot of um, freedom to kind of think what you wanted to put in there. And at the same time, when I was working with Sam, Sam got me hooked in with Matho and he gave me a lot of help with my writing style, like little tricks that I still use today. And I mean, Matho is a bit of a legend in Australian motorcycle publishing and, um, and you know, like working with Boris and all those guys and, um, you know, Kel as well when Kel, I mean, Kel's yeah. still there now. Um, uh, so, yeah, it was a, and Dino, it was, it was a great time to, to, to work there. It was a lot of fun and, you know, he's kind of like, going to work with your mates kind of thing and getting to ride bikes and have some fun on the side. So it was, it was a great time to work at AIMSN. But, yeah, it, would, it wouldn't have started without working for Jeff Ware. He gave me my first gig. So thanks, Jeff. And the, the thing, <laughs> yeah, definitely. And the thing with Jeff, I, I feel with, like with Rapid, it accelerated Street Fighter builds in Australia. That magazine oh, sure. basically bought credibility to Street Fighters in Australia. Yeah, it did, absolutely. Um, yeah, Jeff was very much part of the... Um, I can't remember what the name of the previous mag was, um, but it was basically like it was like the Aussie version of performance bikes, like the UK version. Um, but yeah, he when he started Rapid, you know, he did it all on his own, um, and you know he gave me a start, and I managed to like I was there, I was with him for eighteen months before I went to eighteen to AMCN. But yeah, his his sort of push of the street fighter scene really was a great thing for for the Aussie scene because it sort of showed an area of riding that we didn't necessarily have that much of at the time. And, mm. um, and then once that sort of, he, he went off and did, did other things and now does bike review. And, um, so yeah, he, he, he made a really good impact in the sort of mid two thousands of that mag it was a really cool mag. Yeah, it was, it was just, uh, good photography. Good. It was just an all around good mag. And I, I was working for Ellie in 07 and 08 and he was doing the FZ six cup thing. And I, I don't know your relationship with him now, but back then you wouldn't find a nicer guy to talk to either. So, oh yeah, good yeah. Guy. I mean, I've always got a um, you know a good spot for Jeff. Like we caught up when I went home last time, um, yep. came back, and I think it was twenty nineteen. I think last time I was home, and we caught up for a beer and, and hung out. And yeah, he's a he's a good guy. Um, yeah, I mean, I certainly like for sure wouldn't be where I'm at now if it wasn't for Jeff. Like uh, I, yeah, it's kind of—he's the one that gave me the springboard, and so I owe a lot to him. That's cool, mate. Well, mm. you've got a family. You've probably—we've been on here for two hours, mate. We're going to let you let you <laughs> run. They're probably knocking at the door. And um, thanks for your time, mate. Mate, thanks very much. It's uh, it's been really cool to go on. You, I've been really enjoying yeah, the podcast. The Brent Stevens one was really cool. Well, was, that was sweet, and the Dan Reardon one was good too. <laughs> oh, that's cool, mate. I'm glad you're enjoying them, and it's probably. Good to hear an Australian, uh, annoying Australian voice every now and then for you, I guess, too. So, um, yeah, exactly. Thanks for listening, mate. <laughs> so, thanks for listening. And you're one of the nicest guys like I've met in person and, and everywhere we've sort of got to speak in that. So, thanks heaps, mate. Appreciate it, eh? Yeah, you got it, man. Keep up the good work. Thanks again. Mm-hmm.